Good morning. My name is Kristen Paleo. I'll be reading the scripture. It's found in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 888 or on the screen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father before he's arrested and then eventually taken to the cross. He prays for those who would come to believe in him, and he says of these people, of us, but now these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's echoing something that he said to his disciples just two chapters earlier. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Which is really echoing the words of the psalmist hundreds of years earlier when he writes, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus himself prayed that you would have his joy fulfilled in you. That you would possess in your life a happiness, a delight that transcends your circumstances. Is that your experience? The Bible tells us that there is an unstoppable, indestructible joy that can overwhelm your grief, your stress, your anxiety, your loneliness, and your pain. And let me ask you again, is that your experience? The Apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 8 to real people, just like you and me, who really experienced grief, loneliness, and pain, and struggled to feel the joy that Jesus wants for his people. And this chapter that we're going to study is all about living in a world full of these realities. Do you want indestructible joy? Do you want unshakable assurance? Do you want loving comfort? If so, Romans 8 is for you. But before we dive in, let's pray together again. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for who you are. And uh, as Benjamin was just praying, the fact that you forgive people like us. And that not only do you just do the bare minimum, but you abundantly lavish us with love and forgiveness and joy. We pray that you would help us to see that joy today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, from the time that it was built until 2004, the Petronas Towers in Malaysia were the tallest buildings in the world, standing at 1,483 feet tall. But one of the things that this structure is most famous for, in addition to being one of the tallest buildings in the world, is that it has the deepest foundation of any structure in the world. The foundation for the Petronas Towers goes 400 feet deep into the ground, which for those of you who have a hard time conceptualizing height, 
is, is deeper than any building in Harrisburg is tall, which doesn't say a lot, I know, but is also about as deep as the height of the Space Needle in Seattle or the CN Tower in Toronto, which is Canada's tallest building. If those still don't mean anything to you, a 400-foot foundation would be deep enough for 16 adult African elephants standing on top of one another. I'm sure that clears it up for you a lot. Regardless, it's deep. It's a deep foundation. And the reason that this foundation needed to be so deep was both because the building is huge and the soil around it was volatile. It was loose soil. It wasn't secure. The point is that big structures require big foundations, especially when the soil around them is volatile. And what we have in Romans chapter 8 is a huge promise that is intended to give us indestructible joy. But a huge promise, like a huge building, needs a deep foundation, especially when the world that we live in, like loose soil, is volatile. We're going to look at the foundation and the promise of indestructible joy in three parts today. We'll deal with the bad things that we experience, the good things we experience, and the best things that are yet to come. So the bad things we experience, the good things we experience, and the best things that are yet to come. So we're going to start here today by talking about how there is a purpose for our bad things. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. And again, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 888. So once you get there, find verse 28. We're going to camp out there for a bit as we get started. So again, page 888 if you're in a Pew Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And this verse introduces the huge promise of our passage. And we don't have to wonder who the promise is for, the verse tells us. We're told that this promise is for those who love God, for those called according to his purpose. And this isn't supposed to confuse us, or make us worried if we love God enough or anything like that. Paul here is just identifying that the promise is for Christians. So for Christians, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. The ESV, which is the version of the Bible that we use here at church, translates the phrase, you can see it there probably in the Pew Bible, all things work together for good. But other versions, other translations, actually highlight how active God is in this process. You might actually see examples of this if you, look in, if you have an ESV Bible, if you look at the footnotes at the bottom of the page. Some examples are, God works all things together for good, or God works in all things for the good. But regardless of the way that it's translated, notice that the text doesn't say, favorable things work together for good. Or some things work together for good. Or even most things work together for good. But for Christians, we can be certain that God works all things. All things. Together for good. 
Now, it would be very easy for me at this point to give an illustration about someone who endured a toxic relationship faithfully and honored the Lord in the whole process and is now happily married to a spouse who loves God. Or to talk about someone who didn't get the job they wanted but then was given something even better. It's easy for us to think in these terms, saying things like, well, God kept me from that relationship because he has a better one for me in the future. Or, God kept me from one career move because he has a better job for me in the future. Maybe. But these illustrations would not be helpful because that's not the promise that we see in this passage. The promise is not that God allows bad things or keeps us from bad situations so that he can give us better circumstances. That's not it. And I think part of this comes from a type of polished Christianity that we see that's purely positive and uplifting, and whether explicitly or implicitly, it feeds us a lie that says that when you become a Christian, you will be promised better life circumstances. That the more you trust Jesus and the more moral you become, the more favorable your lot. But when the relationship doesn't come, or if the relationship falls apart, or the job goes to someone else? Do you still believe that your life is good and that God is in control? Do you trust him? Or is it easier to get bitter and angry at him? Do you begin to go, grow apathetic or cynical toward the church? Do you experience the joy of Jesus when things don't feel good? So often, we wrongly believe in a gospel of the cushy life, in spite of the fact that Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble, and that to follow him means to take up your cross. And many times, unfortunately, the verse that we're studying is used as fuel for that fire. All things work together for good, we read, so that must mean that my life will be easy and I'll be able to put on my spiritual cruise control and I'll get to heaven and that'll be great. But again, let me ask you, is that your actual life experience? As a Christian, have you experienced suffering? I know some of you are in the throes of, of deep suffering even now. So what do we do with that? What, what's the answer? Well, as we begin to wade out of the murky waters of the false gospel of a cushy life, we begin to understand that God doesn't promise us better life circumstances, but rather, he promises us a better life. So I'll say that again. God doesn't promise us better life circumstances, but rather he promises us a better life. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul isn't ignorant of the real-life experiences and hardships of living in a real world that we live in. We said earlier that the Apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 8 to real people just like you and me who really experienced grief, loneliness, and pain. And this chapter is all about living in a world full of those realities. How do we know this? Well, if you look just a few verses beyond our passage, if you still have your Bible open, look down at Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
He goes on to say, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But the point that I want to make with this verse is that Paul isn't bringing up abstract threats here. He's not giving us examples of things that don't exist. He names tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword because tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword are real things that are a part of our fallen world. And yet, in our passage, we're told that all things, all things work together for good for Christians, even that. Both the beautiful moments of happiness and fulfillment and the deep, true suffering that you experience as a human being are things that God is using for your ultimate good. When you become a Christian, you don't get more favorable things thrown your way or less unfavorable things thrown your way. But what you do have is a promise. You have a promise that both the sufferings and the sweetness of your life are instruments in the hands of God, and that is good news. You don't have better life circumstances than non-Christians, but you do have a promise that your life will be good. But what does it actually mean for your life to be good? We'll come back to that in just a minute. Well, we see that God has a purpose for all of the good things in our life, all of the bad things in our life, and that's a huge promise. Now we're going to turn our attention to how there is a security for the good things in our lives. God gave us a huge promise. Now here's the huge foundations. The good things that we experience are forever secure. How is that? How does he ground his promise that all things work together for good for Christians? Read verses 29 through 30 with me. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. We're going to stop right there for now. I know there's more in the verse. Why is it Why is it that all things work together for good for Christians? Because God is in careful control of every step of our way. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what it means to have a good life. This is what it means for your life to be good. It isn't some sort of abstract set of favorable circumstances. God's definition of good is so much greater and higher than ours tends to be. A good life is one that guarantees that you will look like Jesus. You will look like Jesus. Now, I know there are a lot of big words in this verse. Some are more familiar than others, um, but for the sake of getting everybody on the same page, let me define some terms. And stick with me, I think this will be worth it. We see Paul say here that God foreknew. If you take the word at face value, it simply means to know beforehand. But in the Bible, foreknowledge means something actually much deeper. Biblical foreknowledge is more like God setting his love and affection on you from before the beginning of time. 
It's not so much that he knew about you as much as he knew you. He knew the deepest depths of who you are and set what we might call his covenantal love upon you. Think about the kind of love a groom has for his bride. For those whom he loved before the beginning of time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined is another big word. And all that it means, literally, is to set a destination ahead of time. It's predetermined. It's fixed. It's guaranteed. And I know that for some of you, when I say the word predestined, all kinds of things pop into your mind. You, you may feel all kinds of ways toward it. And Christians have been deba- debating many things about predestination for 2,000 years. And I'm going to encourage you, try to take all of that out of your mind. Remove all of the distraction of all of the debate. Because Paul uses this word intentionally, and he does it to comfort his readers. So let's be comforted by this beautiful truth. For those whom he loved before the beginning of time, he also set their destination before the beginning of time. What's the guaranteed destination that God has set for all those he loves? Conformity to the image of Jesus. And this is amazing. Amid all of the real threats to our happiness and our peace, think things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Amid all of that, God ensures us that he has a destination set for us. What is that destination? What is that end goal? It is to look like Jesus. If you are a Christian here today, you can be absolutely certain that God has loved you from before the beginning of time, and there is no suffering, no sadness, no broken relationship, no poor choices that can keep you from the destination that God has set for you. If you are a Christian, you can be confident that the destination of your life is nothing less than looking just like Jesus. Take comfort in that. God is so bent on the goodness of your life that before you could even object, he set your course. But that isn't the end of the line. Look down at verse 30. For those whom he loved before the beginning of time, he also set their destination before the beginning of time. And that destination is looking like Jesus. And all those same people he also called. This calling isn't necessarily a big word, but it's worth explaining. And it means that the very Spirit of God has awakened your heart to belief and caused you to desire a relationship with God. So for the Christian, God loves you. He has promised that he will mold you into the image of Jesus. He has awakened your heart to faith. And, keep reading, he justified you. This means that for those who God has awakened to faith and belief, you have the very right standing of Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And this verse has been nicknamed the golden chain of salvation. And it's been called that because each link of the chain is unbreakable and cannot be separated from the others. You don't have one without the other. Everyone God foreknew, he predestined. Everyone he predestined, he called, and so on. We can be confident 
that all things work together for good for Christians because, as Paul writes in a different letter in the New Testament, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the huge foundation for the huge promise is this. God's intentional hand in salvation, what we might call his sovereignty, God's sovereignty over your whole story as a Christian is the very reason we can confidently say that all things, all things will work together for good. God's sovereignty is good news, and it shows us that the good things we have in our salvation can never be lost, and that our indestructible joy is in his careful hands. Well, in Romans chapter 8, we see that God gives a purpose for the bad things. We see that he gives a security for the good things. And also we see that he gives a certain hope for the best things. Take a look with me again at verse 30. We're going to read the whole way to the end of the verse this time. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, for those of you here today who were avid Sesame Street fans, you will remember the game they would play called One of These Things is Not Like the Other. It would go something like this. They would show four items on the screen and three of them would have something in common, but the fourth one would be something much different. And the goal of the game was to identify what, which of the items doesn't belong. So for example, the four items could be an ice cream cone, a hamburger, a slice of pizza, and a hammer. Now, which one of these doesn't belong? The hammer, of course. Hammer is not, hammer is not food. One more. The four items are a guitar, a piano, a jar of mayonnaise, and a trumpet. Which one doesn't belong? A, a jar of mayonnaise. Mayonnaise isn't an instrument. In verse 30, Paul has set up for his readers something like a game of one of these things is not like the other. The four items are God predestining, God calling, God justifying and God glorifying. Which one doesn't belong? This one's a little bit harder, but the answer is God glorifying. But why? Well, in the context of our salvation, glorification refers to a future time when all of our sin will be done away with and we will be made perfect in body and in soul. Has this happened to us yet? No. As Christians, have we already been predestined, though? Yes. Called? Yes. Justified? Yes. Glorified? No. And yet God can speak of our future glorification as if it is as good as done. How can he do that? Because... He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It will be done because God is sovereign over the whole process from start to finish. 
I said that our three points for today would be to look at the bad things we experience, the good things we experience, and the best things that are yet to come. We've seen that God gives a purpose for the bad things. He gives a security for the good things and a certain hope for the best things. But it would be helpful to talk about what hope actually is. What is hope? And why do I say certain hope? In our day and age, in English, hope can seem to be fickle. For example, I can say, boy, I really hope the Steelers win today. Do I know if the Steelers will win today? Unfortunately, I don't. (laughs) But biblical hope is something certain, something sure. It's a joyful expectation of something that you already know is going to happen. It's less like hoping you'll get a new iPhone from your parents for Christmas and more like hoping for Christmas. And in our salvation, we are hoping for a future day when all of our sin will be done away with and we will be made perfect in body and in soul. In our glorification, we see that we have finally reached our destination, the destination that was talked about earlier that God has set for us before time began. In our glorification, we will have finally and fully been conformed to the image of God's Son. Do you look forward to that? You don't have to wonder if it will happen. This verse tells us it's as good as done. For a minute, let's return to the question from the beginning of the sermon. Do you have indestructible, unshakable, immovable joy? And if not, how do you get it? How do you actually experience indestructible, unshakable, immovable joy? Well, keep your finger in Romans chapter 8. We're going to flip back there in a second. But turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, this will be on page 953. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jump down to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The inexpressible joy that Peter talks about here is possible because God has, verse 3, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has caused us to be born again, verse 3. He's kept an inheritance for you in heaven, verse 4. He's guarded our faith, 
verse 5. Both Peter and Paul draw a direct line between God's intentional hand in salvation and the joy of Christians. We are able to have a joy that does not disregard our pain, but transcends our pain because our joy doesn't ebb and flow with our circumstances. Our pain is real. But as we progressively begin to believe more and more that for those who love God, all things work together for good. As we begin to believe more and more of that, we are able to rejoice in the midst of our suffering and trust that all of the pain and all of the hardship in our life is being purposed for our good. We're in a sermon series right now that's highlighting how the local church is God's antidote for our anxious and apathetic age. So what in the world does this have to do with the church? Last week, Pastor Benjamin preached from Matthew 16 and discussed what we call the cosmic story of the world in four movements. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we think of that as the cosmic story of redemption because it's the big picture of the story. But today, as we look at God loving us long before we're born and working even in our glorification after we die, we see that if you are a Christian, Romans 8 isn't so much the cosmic story of redemption, but this is your story of redemption. But there's been something that I've been intentionally ignoring throughout this whole sermon until now. And that is that this isn't primarily a story about individual salvation. Yes, this is truly your story if you are a Christian. But if you look at the passage in Romans 8, if you flip back, you see all of the plural language that Paul uses. If you look at verse 28, we know and those who love God. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, many brothers. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified. This is the story of God saving a people for himself. It is very easy for us to read this at an individual level, but it was never meant to be only that. Paul wrote this to a church. He wrote it to a group of believers to be read aloud in community with others and to be studied in community with others, like we're doing right now. So what happens when a community of people begin to believe more and more that for those who love God, all things work together for good because of God's intentional, careful hand in their salvation? When that happens, they they become a family, they become an army of rejoicers. I don't know about you, but a community of indestructible joy sounds awesome. And I want in on that. Do you? When you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that the circumstances of your life become better or inherently more enjoyable. But it does mean that you have access to a joy that cannot be touched by the sadness and pain that comes with living in our broken world. If you want the kind of joy that doesn't ignore the reality of your circumstances, but is big enough to transcend your circumstances, come to Jesus. 
in Jesus, you are able to trust that there is a purpose behind all of the bad things that we see in our world. Again, it doesn't ignore that there is real evil in our world, but it does recognize that nothing, even evil, is able to thwart God's purposes for your good. In Jesus, you are also able to trust that the good things that you experience in your union with Christ are never able to be lost. And finally, in Jesus, you are able to see that the best things are yet to come. If you're a Christian, there is a day coming when you will be finally and fully conformed to the image of the very Son of God. And in Christ, it's as good as done. All that is required is that you come to him. All that is required is that you ask him to show you the way to indestructible joy. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, again, we just come to you thankful that you have provided a way for us to experience joy, true joy, joy that isn't, uh, doesn't ebb and flow with our circumstances, doesn't change, doesn't go up and down, but rests on the rock-solid truth that you will see us through to the day of our glorification, to the day when we will look like Jesus. So we pray that as we approach that day with hope, that you would fill our hearts with joy and that we would experience the joy of your Son. That we would come to understand what it means to truly rest in the security of being loved by you and in your careful hands. So we pray that that would be true of us even today. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.